0: However, it is entirely possible that by the time rates normalize, housing prices will have only corrected 10 to 15 percent and that they will have to resume because there's just no activity taking place.
1: Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. One of the campaign themes that launched Bill Clinton into the White House in 1992 was, it's the economy, stupid. While much of our politics today is focused on the culture war, the economy is still the one issue that touches everyone, hence the salience of Clinton's slogan in 92. Much of the last few years have been spent concerned about the crushing effects of inflation, Previously on Act in Line, we've discussed the causes and effects of inflation that we've experienced with David Bonson, founder, managing partner, and chief investment officer of the Bonson Group. Today, David returns as we take a survey of the current state of the American and global economy, examine what's happening now with inflation, discuss the housing and rental markets, and then explore the economic effectiveness of conservative culture war boycotts. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at actinorg slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. David Bonson is the founder, managing partner, and chief investment officer of the Bonson Group, where he oversees the management of over $4 billion in client assets. Prior to launching the Bonson Group, he spent eight years as a managing director at Morgan Stanley and six years as a vice president at UBS. He is consistently named as one of the top financial advisors in America by Barron's, Forbes, and the Financial Times. He's a frequent guest on CNBC, Bloomberg, Fox News, and Fox Business, and is a regular contributor to National Review. He hosts the popular weekly podcast, Capital Record, dedicated to a defense of free enterprise and capital markets. He is a regular lecturer for the Acton Institute and the Center for Cultural Leadership, and writes daily investment commentary at thedctoday.com and a weekly macro commentary at dividendcafe.com. David is a founding trustee for Pacifica Christian High School of Orange County and serves on the board of directors for the National Review Institute in New York City. He is the author of several best-selling books, including Crisis of Responsibility, Our Cultural Addiction to Blame and How You Can Cure It from 2018, The Case for Dividend Growth, Investing in a Post-Crisis World in 2019, and most recently, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths, which was released in November 2021. David Bonson, welcome to Act in Line.
0: Well, it is so good to be with you.
1: So I want to have you back as we do quite regularly to talk about the state of the economy. Uh, I guess the place that I want to start, because it's been a theme the last several times we've talked, has been uh, inflation. Uh, what is... What is it, the current state of inflation in the American economy, and the economy al- around the globe? Uh, what, if anything, has changed from the last time we talked, which might have been about a year ago?
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't recall last time we talked about it. It may have been, um, although actually I think we had an interval in between the 2022 university and the 23 university. Um, but it's funny how, as you get older, all these events turn to a blur. But when we were recording for the poverty video, the and, and Michael Miller's event wasn't mm-hmm. that in between the. That two? was
1: in November of uh, last year. So yeah, that would have been. Yeah, uh, so in we between. probably
0: did get together on this somewhere in between. Um, look, I remain steadfast in the camp that if I was predicting that U.S. policy was creating a cycle of inflation. I'd be making the more bullish argument. I'd be taking a more optimistic view of what I think is really going on. Unfortunately, that isn't my view. And I think all those who have been very focused on the obvious uh, headline inflation out of the COVID moment um, have had very justifiable reasons to be focused on it. But it's essentially all but disappeared. Uh, goods inflation is is effectively 0% right now, year over year. And on the services side that um, is keeping the overall CPI number at 4%, you have uh, 34% of that number coming from shelter. And that shelter number they're using is made up of two components, something called owner-equivalent rent and something called um, basically new rental contracts. And what is owner
1: equivalent rent?
0: It's their estimation um, through a survey of what owners of homes believe they could rent their house out for. And so it's meant to capture um, some form of price inflation around housing, but connected to the housing values that are um, basically discounted cash flows. And so rents are a pretty easy way to figure out what rents are. It just is what it is. Someone signs a new contract to rent a home, but then there are a whole lot of people, over 60% that own a home that aren't renting, and they want to solve for what they think that owner could be renting the home out for. And the two metrics put together make up 34% of CPI. And they have them at 8.1% on one of those and 86 year over year on the other. And I am trying to be as gracious as I can to say that perhaps the real number is as high as 2%. But I don't really believe that. I think actual year over year rent inflation is probably 0%. Uh, you have-
1: Is this just what? Based on just what people perceive it to be? So, is because they're answering essentially a survey question, their perception of it is just higher than you think it actually is? No,
0: I don't think that's the biggest flaw. I think, first of all, the bigger flaw is in um, looking at current rents, that they're looking at what some uh, lease that could have been signed a year ago. And most leases are one year, so um, you're going to get uh, the data from each month within that, and each month it's rolling over accordingly. And I don't think that's generally a statistical problem because rents don't usually move rapidly up or down. The problem is that they did move rapidly up in 2021 and into 22, the first, uh, what we now realize is about four to five months of, of 2022. So if in December of 22, rent increase was really slowing, um, and yet it was capturing the data from one year ago, the lag effect is, was substantial. And some critics of me on this point have pointed out that the same was true when they were moving higher in 2020, 2021, that it wasn't yet capturing the violence of the increase in housing and rents. And I think that's a very good point and totally true, but I don't think it negates... My point My point is in the current state, Zillow, Redfin, Realtor, National Apartment Rent, there's about seven different metrics that my group tracks religiously, uh, all have rent price increase year over year, somewhere between slightly negative and as high as 2%. So if you were to adjust the shelter component to present state versus the statistical deficiency of this lag effect, at 34% of CPI, it would have at least a point and a half effect on the 4% CPI, if not more. It would essentially bring the total CPI rate somewhere in the twos, which is the Fed's goal. Um, And so the fact that core goods has been so low and, in fact, seen some deflation for quite some time and that more and more of the base effect of a year ago is rolling off the annualized inflation rate, on six and nine months, so there's something counterintuitive about what I'm saying here. But if you were to annualize six month moves and nine month move moves, you're already um, at a uh, basically zero to two percent inflation, depending on how you choose to deal with shelter. Um, so yeah, I think that there has been significant disinflation over the last year and a half.
1: And before, before we move off the mm-hmm. uh, um, disinflation, particularly when it comes to housing and, and rent. Uh, I I can understand from our previous conversations, too, um, and I've gained a lot of insight from the point you've made about the impact of the reaction to COVID shutting down the economy and the supply side driving uh, a lot of the inflation problem. How does that connect to rents rising so rapidly in that period of time? What was driving these big increases in rental prices, even just kind of beyond the stuff that you know, I would talk about and observe, which is you know which you get from a lot of organizations, not just Acton, but um, other groups on on the right who look at the lack of stock uh, housing stock and how difficult it is to build um, new housing, uh, whether it's single family or apartment buildings, uh, how much time it takes to do that. What was driving that period of big inflation in rent prices?
0: Well, one of the things I love about doing this podcast with you and pretty much all of my communications and activities with Acton is that um, we're allowed to have a more nuanced answer. And the multivariant explanations are tolerated where sometimes in the Twitter sphere and certainly cable news, um, nuance is sort of the enemy and you're forced into a two, three minute soundbite. But this is something that's a bit more complicated and that's one of the reasons why the inflation conversation is not a great political one. Other than when everything's inflating at a real high level and there's a Democrat in office, then Republicans can just yell, look, the Democrat caused it all, which isn't a super intelligent prescription. And
1: neither is the um, the way we always attribute changes in the economy, whether they are positive or negative, to the actions of politicians.
0: Yeah. And the only way to break that, of course, would be for one side to stop doing it. And that's the problem is that no side is going to stop because it's too. if, if your party is in power and a good thing's happening in the economy it's irresistible to not want to take credit and of course we don't ever realize that and that means in three years or six years or at some point in time our party will be in power and bad things will be happening and we're going to take blame for it and we don't realize that that's the other side of the exact same coin and for someone to just say i know my guy's in office and i know the economy's doing great but you know my guy doesn't have a lot to do with that Really, it's because of this, this, and this. Well, what political consultant is going to write that campaign ad, right? It's not going to
1: happen. It's reminiscent also of, uh, as as a sports fan, how coaches always get either too much credit or too much blame for the success or the failure of their team.
0: And there's a market reason in that because they're paid so much that it would be really counterintuitive to suggest the guy you gave $10 bucks to – uh, when the average wage might have been like $800,000, inflation adjusted Somehow they've gotten like a tenfold increase in pay, and uh, you better assume that they're really that uh, impactful, uh, where on the presidential side, I think it's just rank, uh, cheerleading, and, and partisanship. Yeah. But on the inflation side, the rents is still very connected to the supply chain story. But unlike the pure supply issues meaning goods that were cut off from shipping, from labor, from hands, from some intermediary part of, uh, of manufacturing. Um, that was a lot easier to track to supply chain disruptions during COVID. But of course, new construction of supply of housing was basically shut down too. It was technically rendered an essential service in most areas. But I'll give you an example, my wife and I have a house in East Hampton that we were renovating during it and it got renovated, but there was one guy working on it every day for what was should have been about a three week job, took about eight months. One person was allowed in, right? There are other parts of the country that shut down construction entirely. More or less, we went for um, a six month period with almost no construction, a 12 month period with very impeded, and an 18 month period with pretty impeded. But then you say, okay, well, construction's back up and running. Workers can go back to work. It should all be back to normal now. But at that point, the goods inflation. That had taken place as a result of complete shutdown of supply chain affecting concrete, cement, lumber, if you recall, was a major point. Then that was shutting down construction because people were unable to move forward. Product, uh, finished product, housing product couldn't get delivered. Because they couldn't get appliances in, you had all kinds of homes that were done, brick and mortar, landscaping, couldn't hand keys because it didn't have a refrigerator oven because they couldn't get semiconductors that were necessary to all of it. So there was still a lot of supply chain um, interconnectedness that was leading to a slowdown of manufacturing a new housing stock, which was pushing rents higher. But the one area that I've always said, even though I do not believe monetary policy was a primary culprit of our inflation, I've always said that housing is a levered asset class and therefore highly sensitive to the cost of capital. And so to the extent that you got about a 40% increase from the middle of 2020 to the uh, middle of 22 in median home prices – as the interest rate was stuck at about 0% for that entire time, the Fed funds rate and mortgage rates averaged. 30-year mortgage rates were about 2.8. Five-year rates were about 2.1. You just had free money that was significantly pushing home values higher, and uh, there's a big correlation between rents and the sticker value of homes. So I think that rents had a double whammy. supply chain causation and um, monetary policy being forced near the zero bound.
1: What has been the impact of the increase in interest rates for mortgages on the housing market? Because I I was actually having a conversation with my mother about this, who pointed out um it, part of it is what do you compare it to right you know it's it's always a question that anybody from an economic perspective needs to ask about what are we comparing it to so if you're comparing the interest rates that people would be getting for a mortgage now to what they were getting five years ago um, those interest rates are higher my mother reminded me of like you know buying a house in 1980 and you know they would have killed for the interest rates that we have even right at this very moment uh, what impact are you seeing of that increase in mortgage interest rates on the housing market?
0: Well, you know, I think your mother is right as a matter of just mathematical comparison and historical reference. But um, of course, there's nobody buying or not buying a home right now by comparing to the 1980 rate. It's almost entirely anecdotal and non-economic. But what rates were two years ago, three years ago, five years ago is highly relevant Um, for a lot of reasons this may have been underappreciated by everyone I think it was totally non-appreciated by many and and I think I'd be included in the people that may have underestimated how severe of a factor this is there is not right now a significant downward pressure on home prices. I think it's been about seven or eight percent so far, and it may end up getting ten to fifteen. And I had originally forecasted ten to twenty, which was barely just taking the top end of froth from that um, twenty twenty to two thousand twenty to two thousand twenty-two final ending of that ridiculous bubble. It's just taking some of that froth off. However. It is entirely possible that by the time rates normalize, housing prices will have only corrected 10 to 15%, and that they will have to resume because there's just no activity taking place. And the reason is that virtually every seller knows rates are going back down and just figures, I can wait. But even more important than that, this is the underappreciated part that long setup was getting due. If you bought a home several years ago and you have a two, two and a half, three percent mortgage and now you're in a better financial position you can move you want a bigger house, you're ready to do it. It's you can afford. I'm making up a number. You have an eight hundred thousand dollar house. And now you want a one and a half million dollar house. You see, I um, I recognize we have listeners all over the country. But like those numbers where I live in Newport Beach, no no one would even know what I'm talking about because there are no million and a half right. homes. And then there's other parts of the country where people go, that's so ridiculous. So no matter what, I just realize I'm going to offend some people and sound like an elitist or sound you know whatever. But use any number you want. If you could uh, afford double the value of home you're living in, but your rate was 2.5%, and now it's going to be 6.5%, you're not selling, Yeah, and therefore you're not buying the new house. And that is what is just frozen activity completely, where prices can't really drop when people aren't selling at lower prices, but nobody's buying at the higher prices. And so it's really – the Fed has sort of created an unresolvable issue here Um, I don't think there's very many sellers that don't believe that as mortgage rates come down that they're going to see higher prices resume. And that is everybody properly assessing the supply dynamic you alluded to before. We're so undersupplied on housing stock, largely for regulatory reasons. There's still the slowdown of construction. And then there's just this crazy cultural dynamic of – You need more apartments and less single-family residents when people get married at 38 instead of 25. And we're still adjusting to the fact that there's a 20, 25-year cultural change that is not affecting a million people. It's affecting 100 million people, and it has totally changed the dynamics of single-family residents.
1: That unresolvable problem that you said the Fed has created—let me ask you a two-part question then Uh, How does it get resolved? Um, How should it get resolved?
0: Buyers and sellers should resolve it through free human action. And the problem is people want to buy a home. It's a good thing. Uh, But many people who hold homes believe that there is some merit in this permanently – double-digit percentage rise in the value of their home, and you have people buying a home where the cost of owning the new home is going to represent 50% of their disposable income instead of 25 or 30%, which is a much more historically reasonable number. And so I wrote a piece at my own DividendCafe.com just uh, last week um, where I basically said, look, this is a little less economic than I normally am in this uh weekly investment commentary, macroeconomic commentary. This is a cultural thing. I think that when you buy a home you can't afford at 30% of your disposable income, and your cost to carry is gonna be 50%, the first thing that goes is your relationship to civil society. You're out of the home less. You're in bowling leagues less. You're at Rotary Club less. You're at church activities. You're just at home. You can't afford to leave your own home. And so I'm very concerned, and this is one of the most nonpartisan concerns I have in the arena of public policy, because I think both left and right is sort of assumed that it's this wonderful thing to have this constantly escalating price of real estate assets. I don't agree. The cost of capital in the Fed is one of the problems, and the supply side is the other problem, and we need a lot more housing stock, and the way to get more housing stock is not With um, distortive programs and low-income subsidies and other things like that, uh, it is to remove some of the extreme environmental regulatory zoning burdens that keep more housing stock from getting built. Home builders don't need to be told to make money. They can make money selling homes and they rationalize it in their own assessment. There's almost no need for a central bank or a governor's mansion to be involved in how buyers and sellers and home builders all unite in the marketplace.
1: Before we get to the Fed, uh, I do want to ask, and I know we've covered this before, but I think within the context of this conversation, it may be good to go over it again. We did have all those trillions of dollars in spending that happened in 2020, 2021. Uh, What impact did that have, if any, on inflation? Because the political argument you talked about before, that's the line that's being drawn by mostly Republicans to say we've spent all of this money – Spending all of this money is what's creating the inflation problem. And you can blame Joe Biden and the Democrats for all of that. Um, You know, certainly from my own fiscally conservative perspective, uh, was not in favor of all of that kind of spending. Um, but, again, having talked to you numerous times about this now, um, have you know? I, I was never inclined towards that same partisan angle, but have m- even, I'm much more weary of it now than I was before. Uh, but I think it would be good for people to remind them if they've heard this before or if they're listening to this for the first time, what was the impact of all those trillions of dollars that we spent on the inflation and economic problems that we've been seeing the last couple of years?
0: Well, I am in 30 seconds going to make the case that the um, massive multi-trillion dollar excess expenditures and government spending and particularly the government indebtedness that comes from that spending that were not that in my mind were not the primary cause of inflation in 2022. However, I do want to point out that what you just said was that a lot of Republicans seized it to blame President Biden, which would mean by definition that they found the excess spending in 2021 to be inflationary, but not the excess spending in 2020, in 2020 to yeah. be inflationary. And that's a tough thing for me to wrap my arms around, how a dollar, uh, we're saying that they printed too much money, as was the argument, and, the government, and they did so because the government was spending too much money. Well, I think they're printing too much and I think we spend too much. But the notion that the dollars are inflationary when a Democrat does it, not when a Republican does it, is an absurd, incoherent view. So let's go further back than COVID, and to make the point of how Occam's razor-ish, my theory is, about the um, lockdowns and the cutoff of production of goods and services being the primary causation of our inflation. The debt level, the spending level, deficit level, money printing level, M2, money supply growth level from 2009 to 2019, pre-COVID, was like something the world had never seen. And the Fed couldn't get above a one-handle with inflation. They were desperately trying to create higher inflation. Um, and inflating away some of the debt is the most, you know, it's a hundreds of years old strategy. Politicians and central bankers, especially politicians, love being able to inflate away debt if that inflation level can stay moderate enough that nobody gets mad about it. So what was it about the national debt being at $5 trillion and going to twenty-two trillion in a decade—that with both Republican, with Democrat under President Obama and Republican under President Trump—and I, I think I'm exaggerating a little bit because when Obama took over, the national debt was a little higher than that. But both—but even if you go further back, with President Bush,
1: I was just going to say there's um, certainly spending like that uh, or
0: something began but under it. But look, in two thousand six, debt. To GDP, meaning the debt held by the public, not intergovernmental debt, was 36% debt to GDP. It's now 109%. Okay, And by 2019, it was 79%. So it doubled before COVID, debt to GDP ratio. Not just the absolute level of debt, but because GDP grew too. The debt as a ratio to GDP, the size of our economy, doubled. And inflation was non-existent. So uh, I would prefer to just stick with a far better academic parallel, which is Japan, to make the point that the burden of proof is not really on me here, that Japan has 250% debt to GDP and has done that COVID-like spending every year and they've had no inflation whatsoever. But there's always people that will just say, okay, I don't know Japan or I don't understand either or there's just something different. My view is that whether it's UK or US or EU, European Union as an aggregate political bloc, or Japan, there's overwhelming evidence that excessive government indebtedness puts downward pressure, does not make an economy too hot, makes an economy not hot enough. Do I think, that President Biden filling out what President Trump wanted to do with that $2,000 payment. They only got in the, lame, in the lame duck session, they got $600 that they sent out to everyone. And President Biden did the next 1400 in March or April of 2021. And it was an absurd legislation. It passed exactly on a 50-50 vote for whatever reason. Joe Manchin agreed to it. Kamala Harris broke the tie and it was that second uh, stimulus bill, which I think was a, the fifth COVID bill or something at that point. Do I think that it created a sugar high, of new money supply, new spending? Of course it did. But that money stops turning over almost immediately. That's what we call velocity of money. That velocity collapsed very, very early on. And so I don't think it helped the inflation story, but that's not what we we mean by sustainable growth of inflation. Growth of inflation requires money to continue turning over. And the other part of the quantity theory of money is not just the money supply, but the goods and services in the economy. And to me, the far, far more plausible explanation was always that we had reopened our economy with a massive level of demand, and yet reopened our economy with no capacity for production of goods and services.
1: So, starting in March of 2022, the Fed begins raising interest rates, and, and the most recent announcement is that they're going to take a pause in those interest rate hikes. Uh, is the Fed getting it right?
0: No, the Fed has gotten it wrong on both sides of this dramatically and almost by design. I mean, the Fed's structure is to overshoot in times of easiness and then to end up overshooting in times of tightening. And again, let's evaluate what we're talking about here. The Fed had a reasonably normalized rate policy going into the financial crisis, and then we suffer through one of the great debt deflation crises, the great recession, the great financial crisis since the Depression. And they go to 0% interest rate. So they go from about 5% federal funds rate down to zero. And then they stay at zero for literally eight years. Eight years. They raised a quarter of a point in December of 2015 and then didn't raise it all throughout 2016. Then they begin tightening, but at this point, it's an unprecedented experiment in American monetary policy history. They had added $4 trillion to their balance sheet, and they started the process of quantitative tightening, where they're letting bonds roll off, not maturing, and they're taking liquidity out of the financial system. And they're doing like $10 billion a month. It's really not very much. You're talking about $4 trillion. And uh, they start increasing a little bit while raising rates, and credit markets throw up at the end of 2018, and the Fed chickens out. They had gotten the Fed funds rate back to, I think, two and a quarter percent was as high as they got it. And they said, okay we've tightened way too much. And they started coming back the other way. And then lo and behold, just a little bit over a year later, COVID happens and they go right back to zero. So more or less, you mentioned March of 22 when they first raised rates. And keep in mind, that was only a quarter point raise at the time. So from um, October of 08 to March of 22, rates were basically at zero percent. For 14 years, nonstop, with the exception of one year in between. So they were really over, overdoing the monetary accommodation side. And that came with a lot of big problems and distortions. Now, I would argue that they've very much excessively tightened on the other side.
1: Why why were they doing that? Uh, And so in having it basically at zero for that long period of time, what was the what was the reason for that?
0: Well, remember, the entire time rates were at zero, they still didn't get economic growth above uh, 1.6%. You had a couple years where it may have gone a little higher, and there was one year after Trump's tax cut, we got to 29 but we averaged over that whole period of time 1.6%. The entire time of the Obama administration, there was never uh, a growth rate above two, so you were running at half of your 70-year real GDP average. And so I think they realized that the economy was so fragile post-crisis that uh, unemployment was really not coming back strong. And they just viewed it as this economy needs all the accommodation it can get. Now, corporate America reflated quite, quite clearly, quite significantly, re-levered. Households did not, and that was what they were basically trying to do, was replace household leverage with governmental leverage. So households went from about 110% um, debt to assets uh, down to 70 and then uh, the government basically went from the aforementioned thirty-six percent debt to GDP to seventy-nine debt to GDP. So they so they kind of replaced household leverage with governmental leverage. But then the productive part of the economy was able to use low rates to kind of re-lever, and you had a lot of corporate activity and and credit borrowing and whatnot. And uh, I think the Fed looked at it like that's kind of the only game in town. That's the only thing that is providing any sort of uh, backstop to the economy. And nobody ever – no, there's no one in the monetary side or fiscal side that ever stops to consider that maybe the economy – you can just take medicine out of the patient and let the patient's organs kind of function on their own. Um, but in fairness, in 2018, Chairman Powell uh, had been doing two levels of tightening – credit markets threw up, and I think they panicked. And I'm never one who wants to accuse them of certain motives, but you know, I think everyone wants to be popular, and it's not very popular to be uh, in charge of the Fed when uh, some recessionary conditions come. And that, I think, is really what's going on now, is that if they were to create a recession from current monetary policy, I think they'd reverse course in a second. I have no hope that they stop tightening at the right amount and then on the other side stop loosening at the right amount. That we have for my entire adult life been living with the excesses of booms and busts. And I think it's inerrant to the structure of our current Fed that they overdo it both ways. But that's what the next two steps of this will be. They will end up tightening too long and then as a means of treating – The problem they caused with the over-tightening, they will go way too loose for too long the other way.
1: I want to take a right turn, so to speak, in this conversation. I want to ask you a question that uh, comes from my own lack of understanding, I think, of some of the claims being made. So if you look at... Some of the culture war stuff currently going on, what happened with Bud Light and Anheuser-Busch and uh, their engagement with Dylan Mulvaney for a very limited um, promotional campaign. Then you have Target, uh, which is offering uh, for Pride Month certain LGBT uh, plus clothing. And we see these efforts from the right to boycott these companies and the products that they are selling. And I've seen a lot of claims from uh, some of the leading cheerleaders for this about the decline in either stock prices or in market capitalization for these companies and touting this as a sign of the great success of these boycotts. So assume for a minute here that when it comes to stuff like this, uh, I'm a dum-dum and do not understand the claims that are being made uh, about, you know, market capitalization. Uh, that is evidence of the impact that um, these boycotts are having. So. How much is these fluctuations? Are these fluctuations in the stock price and the market capitalization of Anheuser Busch and Target, uh, in your opinion, being affected by these boycotts? Are these people who are pointing to that as evidence of the success of these pressure campaigns? Are they right? Are they wrong? Are they somewhere in between? You know, for someone like me who you know is is a dum-dum in this case, uh, what should I understand about this?
0: Yeah, I mean, first of all, market capitalization and stock price are the same thing. It's just a different mathematical way of saying it because all market cap is is stock price times shares outstanding. And so your market cap goes up and down as your stock price goes up and down unless someone's issuing a lot of new shares or whatnot. And so it's it's just a different way of uh, algebraically expressing the same thing. And it's true, we're in between quarter, reporting quarters for both those companies since these things happened, so we don't have new updated numbers from the company of what their revenues are, and and so when you see the market cap decline, the stock price decline, then there's a kind of post-hoc reason to... Uh, causally associated with the boycotts. My own view is that, anecdotally, it's far more likely related with Anheuser-Busch than it is with Target. Um, I still think it has to be a factor with Target. But the problem is that there are a few different companies, Kohl's is one that sticks out, that are other kind of um, multi-purpose department stores that are not exactly the same market but very similar, um, that have also seen their stock price drop by a proportionate amount to targets that were not a part of the extreme pride actions and the transgender th- thing, uh, the kids and all the stuff Target was doing. So um, I think the bigger impact of the boycotts will have to be felt over time. Um but you know there are counterfactuals that uh, Walmart is doing very well in this period, and Target is not, and so that could cause one to say that they think it is more directly related. But I think anecdotally, anheuser Bush, we have survey data not from the company of revenue reporting, but from distributors that are saying, look, our order, our order flow of Budweisers dropped twenty percent or thirty percent. And so there does seem to be more uh, connectedness there. And then um, qualitatively, I think it's not rocket science for uh, – and you're, kind of, you're a marketing guy. I think that Anheuser-Busch's brand is middle America – And, um, you know, I've confessed this for so many years now, I've lost track, I was dead wrong about Nike. I think that Nike benefited from what they did with Colin Kaepernick. I think it was a positive thing for their target market for a number of different reasons we'll get into. They knew their customer, and apparently Anheuser-Busch didn't know their customer. And so um, I think that there is a benefit, but see, the problem is the stars have to line a little. Meaning not only does a customer boycott, which 99% of them or 90% of them over time have not succeeded, but not only does it take a lot of scale and a lot of organization and a lot of power, but it has to be coupled to something more than just the outrage of some moral iniquity. Like In anheuser Bush's case, it not only has really offended the moral sensibilities of a lot on the right and the culture war, but it also was just sort of so off-brand, like as a beer company that, that that marketed itself to kind of middle America. It wasn't like a manly thing, no pun intended. You know what I mean? And, and so you got kind of a marketing impact in the boycott and the culture war values impact. Those stars don't align very often with, with customer boycotts. We'll see on the target thing. If it turns out that there's a bit more ability to correlate here, then I'll do so. But that's I'm a little more skeptical of that one than I am Anheuser Busch.
1: I, I struggle more in the Target one as well because it, there's a difference between talking about a Anheuser Busch, which makes uh, a line of products, beers, um, many different brands within that portfolio, and Bud Light being one of them, and then Target. Which, of course, is a department store, which is selling all kinds of different goods. Uh, so that I think I did the blowback on that one um, of them offering it was just one of thousands of products being these Pride Month uh, clothing items. Uh, it, just drawing the line there I think is a lot more complicated than it is on the Bud Light side because you're talking about one specific product. Because um, you know, even you can connect the two of them. Target sells Bud Light. So you know it's, it's caught up in this in two different ways in that it is selling the product of one of these companies that we're a little bit more sure of the impact on it. Uh, but it's also selling all kinds of other things as well.
0: Yeah, I think that the bigger impact would be um – in that loyal customer that bought whatever they were buying at Target before and now has just said, I'm switching my loyalty. Like, I, instead of being a – it's not an impulse buy, like, hey, I need to run out and get a thing, or like a wife sending her husband to the store, I need you to go pick up this, this product. It's that, that household that d- gets hundreds of dollars of stuff every month from Target. They had a pretty loyal customer base. And you really don't need a lot. If you were to have 5% of loyal customers say we're now Walmart shoppers, that's a big deal. But,
1: but yeah, it, you know. this is where I get skeptical about it as yeah. well because again talking about understanding your uh, your customer base uh, Target's positioning has always been uh, a more bougie version of Walmart That's whereas right. Walmart would be more targeted to that same middle America That's crowd right. that we were talking about. So if Walmart had done the same thing it would have been I, I think it would have been a disaster, disaster. for them. Uh, but Target doing it especially, you know, I think I lived in Chicago for 15 years there are targets in a bunch of different places. I live in the South Loop, and there's a, there's a gigantic one right at Roosevelt and Clark that we would go to quite regularly. And again, we, think we know the political ideological makeup of major cities like Chicago. You couldn't find a Walmart. In Chicago for a long period of time without going really far out into some of the more ethnic neighborhoods on the the southwest side of the city, for example, down by Midway Airport. Um, So again, it speaks to the different markets that these similar stores in one sense are serving different markets. Than than the other
0: is. So the problem is, and again, we have done a lot of analysis on Target in our dividend growth portfolio at my firm because we have never bought it. And the reason is, and so I have a little bit of intelligence on this issue because I've always been quite surprised at how much we like Walmart's footprint and don't like Target's. Um, The problem is that Target is still hyper dependent on a suburban customer. So, look, if I were to concede that Target won't lose a dollar of revenue from urban customers over any boycott, Pride Month activity, whatever, it's probably not true that they won't lose a dollar, but let's just assume they don't. The issue is, with such low margins that exist in this this whole industry to begin with, and keep in mind where the highest margins are, e-com, and Walmart's growing at 30% a year in e-com, and Target's e-com has been an utter disaster. Um the margins are too low to take a 5 to 10% hit in your suburban markets and I think that's where target is um possibly going to have a vulnerability.
1: Well, I wonder about that too because you know I- to tie it into the political machinations of the last uh, 8 years or so one of the problems for uh, the Republican Party has been sacrificing who had previously yeah. been reliable suburban voters yeah. in favor of you know yeah. the Trumpian white working class right. demographic that has delivered you know delivered for Donald Trump once um and the giving that up in favor of uh, giving up the reliable suburban vote in favor of one that is less reliable. Um, if we are assuming then that this is an indication, at least of this period of time, that the suburbs are in some political understanding moving to the left, I, I wonder, you know, how much that's going to matter to to target them.
0: So let me tell you where I come down on that because I'm basically following your train of thought exactly, and and it's to me a great encapsulation of what the political tension is. That The Republicans are more or less in the Trump moment picked up a lot of non-college educated white working class men and lost an awful lot of often college educated. But maybe
1: to say they've picked up a lot of Walmart shoppers and lost Target shoppers.
0: That's right. However, I don't think they lost those Target shoppers and those white suburban women dislike our view of the culture war. I think they dislike Donald Trump. And so it's entirely possible that you, we talk about split ballot voting in an election. You could get a split ballot vote, meaning, yes, we're the, that person that didn't want to go along with Trump in 2018 or 20 or 22. Yet, yeah, target putting transgender LGBT paraphernalia in a counter display targeting 12-year-olds. Well, I still don't like that very much either. And so you could still very well have a tension within that very demographic we're both talking about. Uh, but, again, it's all on the margin, as all economics is. And that's what we'll have to kind of see more of. The other issue of boycotts, too, is that they're very, very hard to sustain. And that's the amazing thing about anheuser Bush, And it has a lot to do with just a pretty bungled PR response. But, you know, there's things that have happened with United Airlines, with Delta, with Major League Baseball. There's things that uh, really fire people up. At given points in time, and they don't generally last. It's hard to stay mad at a company. Have you ever had an experience with a restaurant or a rental car or a hotel? And in the moment, you're like, I'm writing a letter tomorrow. I'm so mad. And the next day you're like, "No, I'm not. I have a yeah. job, I have a wife. I have, I have no time to write a letter because you just calm down. That's really the issue in the boycotts is a company has to really step in it to keep people mad. And somehow Budweiser managed to do it. And I think the target at some point, it's very possible they move on.
1: Yeah, Over all the years of my political involvement doing this kind of stuff, I would have not lost a lot of money if I would have bet on the ineffectiveness of boycott campaigns, really, yeah. really from either political side. Yeah. Um, although I, I will give the, the left a certain amount of credit that that kind of boycott culture, I think, is a little bit more inculcated into them than it has been into the right. Uh, Which is why I was... Oh, you think that they do it better? I think they generally do it better. Uh, I think they commit to it in a little bit uh, more serious of a way.
0: So what's an example? Are you talking about like Chick-fil-A or something?
1: Yeah, I think that may be a good example. Um, Because I I do know... I I know people... I would say friends from college, I have a degree in music from a liberal arts college, I had a lot of friends who were on the left, um, even some from areas where Chick-fil-A was before it started spreading across the the country who loved it and who won't eat there anymore and I still know are committed to not eating there anymore even as it's gone into New York City where one person I'm thinking of now lives. Um, you know, always proclaimed how great Chick-fil-A was to me. And then the, as it's learned that Kathy is a, a donor to a lot of religious causes that opposed gay marriage, uh, have decided I'm just not going to patronize it anymore. That's a very anecdotal example. But I yeah. think the, the level of commitment that I have seen there uh, and the follow through on it is more than I generally see from the right. I think the right makes these gestures – uh, at like, you know, well, we're going to boycott it. And then that disinterest almost immediately sets in and they move on to other things and it just kind of falls apart, which is why I was surprised by how the Bud Light thing, the anheuser Bush thing, you know, initially I wanted to dismiss it as, you know, people were starting to champion how successful this is and is going to be. And my inclination was to say, oh, it's, it's going to fall off pretty quickly. And that one has, has surprised me at how much it's stuck so far.
0: Yeah, so I I agree with you. I I don't know, though, that um, the the Chick-fil-A boycotters were very natural Chick-fil-A customers uh, from the left even before. And then, you know, I think of like the Chick-fil-A that is on 6th Avenue and 40— uh, 6th Street in New York City. All It's a, a kind of uh, across the street from where Fox News is, but down mm-hmm. uh, like one or two blocks. And it's pretty much just constantly always packed. There's yeah. still a real urban that's very non-political yeah. clientele for it. But Same I, too
1: in, in Chicago. There's one just next to the Chicago Theater on State Street, and it's it's always busy.
0: I think that um, one of the beauties of a 50-50 country is that boycotts are almost all, like all zero-sum. That the louder people on the right could have been when they were mad at Colin Kaepernick and Nike and anti-patriotism, that for every person that they lost as a customer for that, the boycott was creating a customer because there was someone else who felt animated on the other side. And so boycotts do shed customers, but they create customers. And I know that's true with Chick-fil-A, that the louder the left was in protesting Chick-fil-A, which yeah. was largely a very southeast uh, Bible Belt fast food chain. And all a- in Atlanta, yeah. And it became really a big deal in more kind of urban and hip markets. And it, I don't want to say it got cosmopolitan. It's a fast food restaurant. But it did go into nicer areas. As their reputation as Christian chicken was growing, and I think that that is a byproduct of the 50-50 nature. And boycotts are largely – that's what I'd say. They're largely zero-sum. You know, it's going to be disappointing to a lot of those on the right of the culture war, which I am. I'm a right-wing guy who's a traditionalist in in so many ways. But I'm not a big boycotter. But it's going to be very disappointing for people if they do find out. That the real success of the Anheuser Busch boycott was not values driven, but it was the cool factor. Like I'm not drinking this beer that these weird trans. You know what I'm saying? Like that they may have just actually violated the kind of machismo of beer drinking. You know, Budweiser. That that may be more of what this shtick is than anything else. Uh,
1: Before I want to move on to China, but the I I think you could make somewhat of an argument like I, I get what you're saying that you're not really going to call a fast food place cosmopolitan yeah but i think there is something about and and you have to acknowledge that it is informed by the christian orientation of the founders of chick-fil-a you know just the difference in experience that even if it is a fast food restaurant the fact that you know when you say thank you which you know especially as a midwesterner is yeah. you know just uh you you so readily do when someone hands you something and they say, my pleasure. It's a such a more pleasant experience than your average fast food experience that even if it is still a fast food place – Feels different to you.
0: Oh, that's right. Now I know um, uh, much of uh, kind of east of uh, the Rockies, people aren't that familiar in and out burger, but it is by far the best fast food chain in America. It's Southern California based, and the founders were all diehard Christians, and they tragically died an airplane accident right outside one of my offices back in the '90s. And their granddaughter of the patriarch who runs the company now is a diehard believer. Know her well, but see, they're fully private, and that's a huge factor. Isn't
1: there um, – there's a Bible verse on like the underside of the cups, yeah.
0: They did it for years and years and years. And the left would love to have said we're going to go for a boycott of In-N-Out. She gave to other causes and whatnot. Didn't really – there wasn't a thing like being closed Sundays and they they didn't have a public foundation that people like with Chick-fil-A's – uh, owners that they were able to go after for on the form nine ninety for what they were giving to, but there was no ambiguity about the the religious and moral commitments of In and Out. Yet the left would never have gone after it because it was impenetrable. I mean, it's a it's a place mm-hmm. that you know it's that Yogi Berra line. No one goes there anymore. It's too crowded. Yeah. It's why my wife and I can't stand it because the drive through is forty five minutes long and it's time I don't have. But they're just the best burgers in the country, right? That see, that's the thing is. The boycott thing is generally so selective, and that's what the mystery is in the Anheuser-Busch deal, was the asymmetrical risk-reward of what the company did to begin with. Like, let's say there was absolutely no backlash at all. What was the upside? I mean, how much more beer were they ever going to sell? I'm not sure that there was any upside if it had gone perfectly for them.
1: Did you read uh, Abe Greenwald's piece of commentary about the rise of the spokes troll, um, which is it is yeah. certainly a different approach to marketing these kinds of things. That part of the, you know, to think of it as part of the goal is to improve the popularity of the product with a certain market by making uh, a different market that the one you're after hates angry.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Counterintuitive.
1: Yeah. Um, so I. I. I i'm I'm very hopeful because again as 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 a marketing guy, if that is an active strategy and I don't know that it is you know it's um uh, cock up before conspiracy, never attribute to malice things that can be easily explained by stupidity yeah. um and I, I think The Occam's Razor explanation was that it was just um, a a stupid decision by people who didn't understand their customer very well, um, which is a a massive failure.
0: And you say by people, and I think it's important for people to understand right now the state of corporate America, because I'm convinced of this from some of my own efforts on the shareholder engagement side. uh, Sometimes it can be a person that has people— Afraid to talk, to to push back on the person. But you get one 28 year old woke marketing person running with a a transgender idea, and you get uh, 30 middle aged white guys that are afraid to say no. That that's people, but it's a person driving. What do you
1: you think that person's probably looking at someone like Dylan Mulvaney and the, what they're looking at is um the follower count of an influencer? They're uh, gonna say like yeah. lots of people watch this person's videos, so like let's get this person to promote our product and only good things will come of it without thinking of, you know, is this a fit for our brand? Is it a fit for um Bud Light specifically, is it fit for Anheuser-Busch? Is there even like a different beer product or, you know, is it um, a seltzer product that they could do this with that would ha- not have the same uh – backlash, that would not create the same backlash that we saw.
0: And I also think that sometimes it could just be the uh, naivete of looking at a follower account not knowing your actual customer base. But other times it could be ideological. I don't think that's the case of Anheuser-Busch, whoever made this mistake. I think just it was it was stupidity. Yeah. But with Disney— Or maybe I, a little of both. I think with Disney, it was, a, it was pretty crass ideology. Um, from some from, at the time, the chief marketing officer had a real agenda there, and and in some of these cases, these are fascinating things. They're basically aware that it's bad for business, and they want to do it anyways. That's where I think the boycott has to happen. Not not excuse me, not the boycott, but the engagement has to happen from shareholders, because the owners of those businesses have uh, are entitled to a fiduciary treatment that is better than someone doing something like that.
1: I was going to ask you about what's going on in China, but um, uh, we've been going for a while. And the good news is that uh, you've always been so generous with your time with us at Acton. So we'll have you back on to talk about what is going on in the Chinese economy and how that is affecting everybody around the world. So we'll talk about that next time. But for now, David Bonson, thanks so much for joining us today on Acton Line.
0: Thanks for having me, Eric.
1: As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you.